So, well, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm going to do something I rarely do anymore, and that is I'm going to kind of read my paper. Does that sound all right to everybody? There is a lot going on with this particular subject, and I just don't want to miss something that might be kind of important on it, which if I just went kind of ad-libbed it, I would miss a lot in the process. So and that probably you're not real surprised that this is about something that has a subject that has to do with the Highway Commission. I hate this part of it too. <laughs> I feel like I ought to be singing, but I'm not going to do that. I would never do that to anybody. So today I'm going to talk about the, uh, the 1936 Highway Commission scandal, which um, probably none of you have ever heard of before, and I hadn't ever heard about it either until just a few years ago. Let's see. All right. So, but a perk of working at the MDT is that I have access to the agency's historic records. And in addition to looking at old plans, photographs, and other primary sources, the State Highway Commission kept meticulous records of its monthly meetings, the first being in April 1913. The Commission meeting minutes are a treasure trove of information about how it and the highway department operated, especially during the critical time during critical times in Montana history over the past 108 years. Many years ago, I read in the meeting minutes about a serious issue that arose between the acting governor Elmer Holt and the highway commissioners. The acting governor accused the men of malfeasance and removed them from office. Scandal in the commission has only happened twice, and this was the first instance. Things like this are naturally more interesting than the housekeeping of the monthly meetings. I, otherwise, I probably wouldn't be standing up here today. I researched the issue, collected a lot of information about it, and then fear got the better of me. How would the present Transportation Commission and my administrators in the department feel about me writing about a subject like this that involved highway commissioners being accused of malfeasance in office? So I kept this in a folder in my desk for many years, and uh, finally I figured, well, you know, I'm retiring in about two and a half years. What the hell? <laughs> I mean, I could retire now if they get real mad. But, you know, I, I did ask before I did it, and they said, sure, you could you know, provide an object lesson for the commissioners now. I said, well, and I don't see any commissioners sitting out in the audience, so I don't know if that'll, that'll work about it. Fortunately, the fears, again, were groundless, and the result is being published, or it has been published, in the autumn issue of Montana, the magazine of Western History. So I was pretty excited about that. My wife was for a while until she found out there was no money that came with it. <laughs> but this is a ripping good story that involves somebody we're all familiar with, but we probably know next to nothing about, and that's Paul McLean, the brother of a River Runs Through It author, Norman McLean. And I figure probably most of you have seen the movie at least and read the book. So you, you kind of know what Paul was like in that, in that particular book. But I need to give you a quick little rundown or background on the Highway Commission. The legislature created the Highway Commission in 1913 specifically to provide advisory um, uh, services to the counties who were really the ones that were in charge of building roads at that time. They also came up with the first Montana highway map, and they for a while used uh, convict labor to build what they called demonstration projects around western Montana. 
and the, the convicts, to their credit, were really the first rope contractors in Montana. That at that time, there were no contractors that had experience building that kind of facility. All right. Get this. Ah, there we go. Uh, this is, uh, in 1921, the, the federal government enacted the, the next Federal Aid Road Act, and that established really the federal aid highway system in Montana consisted of a, oh, a little over uh, 4,700 miles, and these were all roads for which there was federal aid, the, for which they could spend federal money on. And so this was really an important step in the development of highways in Montana. And also, you know, there's a slow incremental increase in the, in the responsibilities of the Highway Commission at this time. In 1927, Montana voters passed the, uh, the first uh, fuel tax, and that law really gave the Highway Commission and the Highway Department firm hand on building roads and bridges in Montana. Before that, they were slaves to the counties. The counties decided which highways were going to be built, and, uh, and the Highway Commission just kind of went along with that. And, but after 1927, the Highway Commission was really in the driver's seat to building highways across Montana. Okay. So that's, that's what the system looked like up until uh, the interstate highway era. And just as a background, in 1930s, if you were a tourist coming into Montana, the port of entry station attendants would hand you these cards like this. And you were supposed to write, draw in what route you took across Montana, what roads you used. And then when you got back home, you put the card in the mail, you sent it to the, to the, uh, to the uh, back to the department, and then they'd uh, use that data to develop more of their, their highway program and also the tourist program at that time. So I found this one on eBay, and uh, unused, unfortunately. I'd like to see some used ones sometimes. All right. Now, for the Highway Commission itself, it consisted of three men. They were all appointed by the governor, and they each served two-year terms. They served at, or they attended one, uh, monthly meetings, uh, mostly in Helena, but sometimes they took that meeting out on the road. And they were, for them, those meetings, they were paid $10 per diem, which doesn't seem very much, and it really wasn't very much then either. But uh, that's all they could legally claim, according to the law, was $10. And uh, there was a slight change, apparently, or perceived change in 1925, with that particular highway commission started charge per diem for every function that they attended. So that wasn't legal. That was, uh, wasn't sanctioned by the legislature. But highway commissions after 1925 followed that as policy, even though it really wasn't. So and that's what's going to be the root of the problems that we're going to be talking, I'll be talking about tonight, or this afternoon, today. <laughs> You can see I'm a little bit nervous. I haven't done anything like this for two years. All right. Now, the commission was a high-profile state-appointed panel because mostly of all the federal money that they were channeling in the development of the highway system in Montana. So sitting on the highway commission was really a big deal. And it was uh, noted in the uh, newspapers at the time what they were doing on a monthly or sometimes weekly basis. And so there was a lot of attention in Montana directed at what the Highway Commission was doing. And they did have a tremendous impact on the state, especially during the Great Depression, because we were getting in tons of, of federal 
uh, money, uh, mostly in the form of grants um, at that time because we didn't have the money to match federal funds. And, um, and so that was really important that, that the commission kind of keep tabs on what it was doing internally as well, which was something that they didn't do very well at the time. In March 1933, Governor Frank Cooney appointed Missoula garage owner Lucius J. Louis Krunenbergs to the Highway Commission. Cooney had been John Erickson's lieutenant governor. When Erickson resigned in 1933, Cooney became governor. In those days, lieutenant governor, the lieutenant governor was elected to office separately from the governor. So when Cooney assumed the gubernatorial seat, that left his old position open and it couldn't be filled again until the general election of 1936. Did I get that right, Chuck? Yeah. All right, good. <laughs> you helped me with that part of it. But at that time, rumors were swirling already that Louis Krunenbergs was in tough financial straits because of the Great Depression. He was hurting because of what was going on statewide and also nationally. In April 1935, Cooney appointed two new members of the commission, uh, Great Falls physician Harry McGregor and Billings attorney Rockwood Brown. At, their new, at the new commission's first meeting, McGregor and Brown appointed Krunenbergs the, quote, traveling representative, representative of the commission, a newly created position that directed him to, quote, spend as much time as he may be able to devote to actively looking after equipment and other business matters throughout the state on the commission's behalf. It's kind of an open-ended little job he got there from, from his two compatriots. Essentially, the job allowed Krunenbergs to travel around Montana to inspect highway projects, visit maintenance facilities, <laughs> attend meetings with various county commissioners and civic groups, and to attend in and out of state conferences. He could collect per diem outside the regular $10 allowed the commission by law, along with mileage, hotel lodging, railroad fares, and miscellaneous expenses. As you can imagine, Krunenberg's wasn't going to be doing so bad after all. Things took a turn for the commission in December 1935 when Governor Cooney died of a massive heart attack. Since there was no lieutenant governor to fill the position, the president pro tempore, I pronounced that right? All right, of the legislature, Elmer Holt, became the acting governor of Montana. He was a Miles City rancher and real estate developer. Uh, Holt had first been elected to the legislature in 1918 by Custer County voters and had a reputation as a good, steady politician who didn't like corruption in state government. Unfortunately for the Highway Commission, Holt had a problem with Harry McGregor and Louis Krunenberg. Shortly after assuming office, Holt zeroed in on the perceived corruption in government. He launched, launched an investigation into two state commissions in the spring of 1936, the Montana Relief Commission and the Montana State Highway Commission. A common denominator between the two was Harry McGregor, who was on both boards. McGregor and Holt served together on the Montana Relief Commission. A conservative, McGregor was at the opposite end of the political spectrum in the Democratic Party from the more liberal Holt. There was a veiled antagonism between the two men, but how much of Holt's animosity towards against McGregor was a personal dislike or the, of the man is unknown, or if it was just because of politics. 
The fact that McGregor was a conservative Democrat and Holt a New Dealer likely played a role in how this scandal would play out. After the state auditor conducted his normal annual audit of the Highway Commission in April 1936, which showed that there was nothing inappropriate going on, Holt asked for a second one because of questions about Krudenberg's collection of per diem and the, well, uh, when the commission wasn't in session. Turns out that Krudenberg's had collected $5,500 in per diem, racked up 24,000 miles on his private car between April 1935 and April 1936. To say he made a good living per, on per diem and mileage is an understatement. That would amount to little over $97,000 in 2001 money. The average annual salary for most Americans in 1936 was $474, or just about $9,000 in 2021 money. So you can see Louis Krudenberg was doing pretty well at the public expense with this job that wasn't really legal in the first place. Holt's, per Holt's personal attorney, oh, I guess I better move up here. This is just a, a highway project in Mineral County. Um, just to give you a short background, there was most of the projects in the 1930s were a combination of mechanical equipment like this dump truck and also horses. That horses were really important, mostly because local ranchers and farmers were hired to work the horse team, so it provided employment to them. Uh, this is Governor Frank Cooney, shortly before his death in 1935. And these are our three gentlemen that we're talking about tonight, today. That's uh, Harry McGregor on the, if I got that on the right, left. This one. <laughs> the man in the middle is uh, Louis Krunenberg, and the other gentleman on the other end is Rockwood Brown. And... Uh, of course, they like getting their pictures taken, too. It's the same way as Krunenberg's, McGregor, and Brown on the front row. Um, the Bureau of Public Roads um, representative from Montana up in the upper left. Um, Don McKinnon, who is the chief engineer of the Montana Highway Department in the middle. And someone we're going to talk more about here as we go along, William O. Whips. He was the secretary of the Highway Commission. He's the one that took all the notes and wrote everything up for the minute books. All right, now just to get back to this, when uh, things kind of hit the fan, Holt's personal attorney, a man named George, John Slattery, sarcastically stated that, to his credit, Krunenberg's, quote, never submitted per diem claims for more days than there were in the month. <laughs> and he was submitting claims every day of the week. I mean, literally. I mean, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating there at all. Meanwhile, in June 1936, Acting Governor Holt threw his hat into the ring for the Democratic gubernatorial primary. His main opponent was a man named Roy Ayers, who would eventually win the election. After a hard-fought campaign, Holt lost the primary to Ayers in July and blamed it all on the Highway Commission's public opposition to him, specifically on McGregor. Now, one is inclined to wonder why they would support him anyway, as rumors were already circulating in Helena that Holt was investigating the commission's per diem claims. So, you know, that's a big question, why he thought that that would be the case. But the primary would be a point of contention for what happened later that year. 
At its monthly meeting on October 1936, Holt presented the commissioners with an order to show cause why they shouldn't be removed from office on the grounds of malfeasance. He claimed the appointment of Krunenbergs as the traveling representative was illegal and that the commissioners knew that it was illegal when they did it. He was also accused them of abusing per diem. But it soon became clear that the acting governor's real target and that Krunen was, and that Krunenbergs was, excuse me, it became clear that McGregor was really the acting governor's real target and that Krunenbergs was a catalyst for, for settling the political vendetta. Now, this is a good part. The emergent scandal was covered by the Helena Independent Capital Beat reporter, Paul McLean. Most of us know something about McLean because of both the novelette and the film version of A River Runs Through It. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister. He was a brother of Norman McLean and uncle of John McLean, the author of the recently published Home Waters. If you haven't had a chance to read the book, I would really, really recommend it. An experienced reporter, he had been working for the Independent since 1932. He was an active member of the Democratic Party in Helena. He was also a New Dealer, and he was popular with the newspaper's readers, had his own byline, and was a favorite of the notorious Independent editor, Will Campbell. McLean took the side of the governor in his attack on the alleged corruption of the Highway Commission because, like Holt, he also was a New Dealer, New Deal Democrat. His writing was biased, it was colorful and descriptive, and it really prompted the most exciting thing that happened during this whole scandal. I also think it's important to note here that Krunenbergs was, the Krunenbergs were family friends of the McLeans. George Krunenberg, um, Louis' son, tied flies or showed Norman and Paul how to tie flies. He also fished with, uh, with Mr. Dr. McLean. He was a fisher, fishing buddy of both Norman, Paul, and then later of, of uh, John McLean. So it's kind of interesting that that put them on two sides of the political fence there during this whole scandal. But amazingly, it, well, maybe not so amazingly, that McLean was pretty hard on McGregor. He was pretty hard on, on Brown, but he treated Krunenbergs with kid gloves. And I always kind of wondered about that until I read the Home Waters book and realized that uh, the, the family was, the two families were, were connected. The first hearing for the, for the uh, removal of the commissioners occurred on November 11th. The charges included all three commissioners, but focused mostly on Krunenbergs and even more so on McGregor. Brown was just kind of incidental to the whole proceedings. While the governor noted, let's see, go on to the next. Oh, governor Holt, or acting Governor Holt. All right, this is Paul McLean, and if you'll notice, he does kind of look like Brad Pitt, doesn't he? So he was a young, handsome guy, and also I didn't say this because I didn't know if I should, but the newspaper seemed to think that it was very important that Paul McLean was popular with the ladies as well. <laughs> so but after looking at this, I can kind of see why. Okay, and that's William Whips, and I'll leave that up there for just a minute. Okay. All right. So while the governor noted that Krunenberg's per diem claims in depth on the first day of the hearing, he spent more time going over the substantial number of McGregor's claims. Holt noted that McGregor had admitted 141 per diem claims, totaling a little over $2,500 between April 1935 and May 1936. 
According to Holt, only 40% of the claims were allowable for McGregor's attendance at regular commission meetings. Now, what he also said, too, was that it seemed like McGregor liked to go to out-of-state conferences, mostly in Miami, Hollywood, and Las Vegas. <laughs> Which, you know, well, if I was going to go to one, that would be a good place to go to. Holt also accused McGregor and Rockford Brown of conspiring to employ Cronenberg's, quote, in a daily lucrative post as traveling representative for the commission. Then he abruptly ended the hearings. He just walked out. He said pretty much he'd heard enough when the commissioners tried to defend themselves and he got up, left the room, came back in a little bit, and he all issued orders of removal that took the commissioners, that really the Made, well, the commissioners left, were supposed to be out of the board. After the hearing, Brown told the Independent that the charges reminded him, quote, and this is a great quote, of a Mexican beat worker who gets hopped up with smoking marijuana or Indian hemp. At a certain stage of his intoxication, his imagination goes haywire and he pulls out a knife and starts slashing everything in reach. Glad you laughed, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Five minutes, John. Five? That's all I got? I talked that long already? Okay, I'll hurry up. Well, basically what happened, the commissioners disagreed with Governor Holt. They said, well, we haven't been given an opportunity to defend ourselves. They took it to the first judicial court, and Helena, Judge Horsky, said, yeah, you're right. You weren't given that opportunity, so Governor Holt, you have to let them do that. Well, Holt didn't agree with it. He said instead, well, you know, I don't need to do that. But, and he took it to the Montana Supreme Court, and they said, no, you do have to do that. So the hearings were held at the end of November 1936. Um, again, the commissioners did get a short opportunity to avoid the, or to answer the charges, but um, they didn't. And, but the Supreme Court said, okay, well, you got to do it again in, in December. So for a week in December of 1936, there were hearings, and uh, the commissioners all got to air their grievances, essentially, against, uh, against Governor Holt. Um, they also brought in two former highway commissioners to testify on their behalf, which they didn't, and uh, mainly because, um, because they never collected per diem except for that $10 they were allowed under law. They said, one of them said, well, you know, I just like what we were doing. So I didn't ever think that there was any, that I was supposed to collect per diem when I went out to look at highway projects. And then OS Warden, who had been the chairman of the commission for a long time, said, yeah, I was the same way. He says, it was, I figured if we were going to go look at anything else, it was all on our own dime. Well. McLean is covering all of this for the newspaper. It's very colorful, it's very biased, it's very interesting. And uh, he did cover the November hearing, and then he went in and he uh, followed, well, let's, let's kind of make it uncomplicated, in my mind as well as I'm talking about this. The commissioners were reinstated for a while. And so they went into their offices in the basement of the state capitol. They said pretty much that we're it. I mean, we're, we're, we're not going to pay much attention to what's going on, and we're going to continue doing what we're supposed to be doing. They paid claims against the department, you know, bills for the contractors on highway projects. And then they all went down to the Placer Hotel to, quote, continue the meeting. <laughs> McLean followed them, and he said some pretty awful things about William O. Whips, the 
this gentleman here. Called him the, uh, the executive wearer of the great sour mask. <laughs> and he also talked about the chief maintenance engineer, Ed Donahue, as the assistant to the great executive assistant, whatever that meant. Well, Whips didn't like this. And Whips was kind of a voluntary, volatile personality anyway. So when McLean came to cover more of the story in this basement of the state capitol, in front of the highway commission offices, Whips confronted McLean. And the two men got into a verbal argument. And then finally the newspaper said something to the effect of, well, then Whips uttered those well-known fighting words. And the two men got into a fist fight in the state capitol basement in front of the highway commission offices. And McLean beat the hell out of Whips. <laughs> And Webbs got back and says, I took a beating, but I'm glad I got my two cents worth in, essentially. So, but it didn't work. The eventually, even after the commission's meeting, uh, hearing in December, that went on for almost a week. It was very tedious. It was started early in the mornings, ended late in the evenings. And on the very last day, Louis Krunenberg was called to, uh, to testify in his behalf. And Paul McLean did have a field day with Louis Krunenberg's. Um, testimony. He says what he did, what questions he did answer took between 15 to 25 minutes to complete for each question. McLean kept tabs on his stalling tactics which included consulting his notes, retrieving a piece of candy from a roll of lifesavers, pregnant pauses, combing his hair, drinking water, and even in one case falling out of his chair. <laughs> okay. I would have liked, I think I would like to have met Louis. But, uh, but he also said during the, um, he also said also at the very end that during the past several years, well, that said that part of the testimony included an interesting travel log and a detailed expl explanation of the theory of breaks. So I could, it must have been mind-numbing sitting during those, those, those meetings, I would guess. But they ended on December 23rd at 9 o'clock at night and Holt marched back into his office, retrieved the orders of removal, and the highway commissioners were expelled from office for the last time, despite their valiant attempts to try and save themselves. Okay, so, mainly I just wanted to say, in conclusion, I think, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, uh, never read a paper, because it's always too long. So, especially if you're not a fast reader. But in conclusion, um, three new commissioners were, were, uh, were, were uh, put in office. They only were there for a few months before um, Roy Ayers became governor, and then three new men came in. But I did want to say that between April 1935 to December 1936, their administration was very successful. The contracts totaling, they let contracts totaling $12.6 million, which is about $248 million today, which improved and paved nearly 1,000 miles of primary urban and farm-to-market roads and built over 100 new bridges in just 19 months. That's quite an accomplishment, I think. Um, it's also due to this particular highway commission in 1936 that we have the Roadside Highway Historical Marker Program that uh, we get the, well, that's John Bonner there. Highway Patrol lined up in the state capitol. One of the roads that were improved, this is a curb by Phillipsburg. Two bridges, the Moss Main Overpass and 
Laurel and then the old Essex Bridge over the Flathead River on Highway 2. All right, now we're caught up. But they did uh, pass or approve um, the creation of the highway maps that we all know about and we probably still keep in our cars. The Highway Historical Marker Program was a product of this particular commission, as was the Port of Entry stations as well. So it was a very progressive highway commission at that time, and we got a lot to uh, you know thank them for as well. So I don't know if that really condones what it is they did, but I also figure they didn't really know they were violating the law either. But you know, Krunenberg's did pretty well in that year, and so okay. In conclusion, very quickly, <laughs> John Bonner became governor in 1948, okay? He didn't like William O. Whips, probably because he knew all about Whips from his time as the chief counsel for the, uh, for the highway department and the highway commission in the, from 1929 to 1937. So one of the first things that he did in 1950, and by 1950 he'd had enough, he told the high, new highway commission to fire Whips, that he didn't want him there anymore. And the reason being is that Whips had really become a toxic personality. He was a bully, he was loud, abusive to his co-workers, especially women, and he allegedly kept a loaded pistol in his desk drawer. Well, the Highway Commission didn't want to get rid of him. They liked, for whatever reason, they thought the governor was, was overextending his authority, and so they refused to do it. And so once again, the governor issued you know, an order, notice of order of removal, commissioners had to come into the office and they did cave and fire whips and then they all three, then all three men resigned. So, but with McLean, you know, I think this was really a good example of how good a writer he really was. And it's unfortunate that his life was cut short in 1938 in Chicago when he was murdered in a back alley there because who knows what he may have been able to produce in his, during his life. Um, that would have been maybe equal, at least equal to whatever his brother Norman did. So, with that, I'm all done. <laughs>